morning, Coastal. Great to see you. Do me a favor, get your Bible out. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. I'm actually going to kind of be all over the place this morning, so uh, you have to turn quickly. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, Lord willing, there's one in a chair in front of you. And uh, turn with you to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus is your second book in, okay? So, and you can go to chapter 25. We are um, uh, covering five chapters this morning. How do y'all feel about that? All right, a little nervous, uh, I'm sure. Uh, But we are picking up in a series that we started probably six or seven years ago. I decided that in the beginning of each year, I wanted to preach through the Pentateuch. So that's the first five books of the Bible. And uh, of course, we started in Genesis, right? God creates the man and the woman in the garden. They sin, and God goes to work to redeem man. And so the rest of Genesis is this chosen people starting with Israel, that uh, you know uh, that comes from Abraham. Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to send the Messiah uh, through you, Abraham. And then out of the downline of Abraham comes the children of Israel. And uh, the book of Genesis ends with the incredible story of Joseph picking up in like chapter 37. I, be- I mean, chapter 38, I believe, and all the way to the end of the book. Just an incredible story of God keeping his children, the children of Israel, the children of Jacob from the plague and from the, I mean, from the uh, lack of food and the, the famine that comes their way. And God brings them into Egypt. And in Egypt, the, the family of Israel incubates into a great nation. And so then we picked up an exodus where at this point, the nation of Israel is now large uh, and uh, the pharaohs are and the Egyptians are abusing and enslaving the Israelites. And so God raises up a guy by the name of Moses, and through Moses, he does the plagues, and you guys know a lot of the plagues, and the, you know you even probably hear this in movies where someone say, plagues of biblical proportions, right? And that's from the Exodus and, and the Red Sea, and, and Moses leads them out into the wilderness, away from the nation of Egypt, and, uh, and now we're picking up kind of post-Ten Commandments. That's where we finished last year. Moses goes on Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments, okay? And now we're in this wilderness time where the people are in the wilderness uh, going to the promised land. And today, God sets up something that's very important. In the center of the people is this tabernacle that is to remind them that he redeemed them so that they would worship him, okay? Everybody with me on that? And so I I use this illustration a little later in my sermon, but I think I'm going to use it now. I'll tell you what, take that slide down, and we'll come back to that, all right? How many of you have, uh, so I need to take the slide down. I I don't know if they can hear me back there. I'm not trying to be mean. All right, here we go. All right, check this out. How many of you have these kinds of pictures in your house that one of your kids drew? Anybody, right? Uh, my kids are now adults, and they're probably mortified that I still have this and am holding it up, okay? But this was a Father's Day picture that one of my kids drew me, and it's a picture of our family, and all the family members are labeled. And one of the things I noted this, day, this week as I was looking at it is he drew himself, even though he was very young, as the same size as me, and everybody else in the family is much, much smaller. And I'm sure all the child psychologists were like, you got trouble on your hands. Like, I'm sure that means something terrible. But uh, anyway, so that was that. And uh, But is now, this is a picture from a child's rendering of our family. But is this really our family? 
right? No, the, 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 uh, the reality of our family goes much deeper than the stick figures that we see here, right? And, and there's some depths to our family that no single snapshot or picture uh, could ever fully capture. In the same way, the tabernacle is a sketch that is reminding us that there's something even greater to come, right? That the worship of God was never to finalize in this tent called the tabernacle. Everybody with me? And so it points to eventually there's a temple that's built that David and Solomon built together. David got the resources, Solomon built it, which then reminds us of the final sacrifice in Christ, right? That then reminds us that Christ is taking us home to the day that our faith becomes sight in our heavenly reality. So this tabernacle is all pointing to something. One of the things that it points to is a Romans 1 idea. Romans 1, the idea is that every human being that walks the planet is a worshiper. We're all worshipers. The people that you know that aren't Christians, they're still worshipers. There's something that they place at the center of their being and say, that is what I'm gunning for. That is what I'm shooting for. That really is my cornerstone of my life. And Romans 1 makes it clear that all of us worship something. But if we don't worship the true and living God, we will end up in bondage, right? Even an atheist, if you run to someone and say, I'm an atheist, you can be assured that even in their atheism, what they're stating is, I've been everywhere, I know enough to know there's no God. And they can make a God-like declaration in their atheism. Y'all with me? And therefore, they're putting their own intellect and their own ideas at the center or the cornerstone of their being, like, I know enough, okay? So as God redeems this people, he leads them out of Egypt with the plagues and on the Red Sea and all that, and they're headed to the wilderness, God takes five chapters in Exodus to define for them, at the center of their community is the idea of the worship of the true and living God. You all with me on that? And so I'm going to overview the five chapters really quickly, and I'm going to pull out four points that I hope encourage us this morning. So chapter 25, you can go ahead and put the slides up. So that God gives specific designs on the temple, right? And the people in chapter 25, they bring their contributions, and God says, this is what the temple or the tabernacle is to look like. He gives specific designs for the Ark of the Covenant, okay, which would have been placed inside of that tent, the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant was throughout the Old Testament a symbol of the presence of God. God gives designs in chapter 5 for the table of the bread and the golden lampstands. God gives so much detail. He even defines for the nation of Israel, he gives designs for the utensils that are to be used in the ceremonies when they worshiped at the tabernacle. Chapter 26, God gives a very specific detail of this entire tabernacle, the curtains, the fence, the altars, everything. God is really the first engineer, and he designs things specifically, and then he gives instructions on where the Ark of the Covenant is to be placed in the tabernacle. Chapter 27 God instructs how the bronze altar is to be made, and that's what's out there in the center in the courtyard, what it's to be used for. 
the steps that would be taken before the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. All of this is a representation of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 27 tells us where the utensils are to be placed in the tabernacle. Chapter 27 even gets so specific. It says, this is the kind of oil that I want you to use in the lamps as you enter the tabernacle. And then chapter 28, now, the, the author pivots to the garment of the priests that would be serving in the tabernacle. He gives the design specifications for the garments that the priests would wear. I don't know if we can go to the next slide because you can even we haven't we have a picture of this for you. And then in chapter 29, it gives a detail of how the priests are to be set apart for leading the people in worship. In other words, I want there's a process to setting the priests apart. So there's what they wear and then what they need to do to be set apart. And this this process included personal hygiene and it included the garments they would wear and it included the sacrifices that they would make on their behalf. And and all of this is is a sketch of a, of a truer reality that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Okay, so here we go. I want to, so I've, I just covered five chapters of Exodus, right? Woo, how about that? How many? No, I'm not going to ask for showings. Listen, I want to encourage you to read these. In fact, I want to encourage you to read these today after you hear the sermon because I think it will help you make sense. Like, why in the world is this stuff even in the scriptures, right? And, and so next, we're hoping to finish up Exodus this year, and next year we're going on to Leviticus, Okay, so I can't wait. So I'm actually pretty excited about Leviticus. Point number one, here's what I want to draw out of this, because we get this detailed picture of the tabernacle. And so here's what I want to remind us. Our God cares how he is worshiped, even to the details. In fact, next week, we're going to look at the golden calf, right? And a lot of y'all know the golden calf story. The golden calf is really about the people of Israel thinking they're worshiping God rightly when, in fact, they violated the way God told them to worship him. In other words, sincerity is not enough. We have to worship God the way God has instructed us to worship him. We have to worship the God who is and not the God of our making, by the way, you live in a culture that most in our culture would say that they believe in the God of the Bible, but the God that most in our culture believe in is an incomplete God. Most of our culture would say, of course, God is loving, but they would leave out the fact that God is also just and holy and wrath. There's no wrath in the God of the most of the average American we just sang about that, by the way, right? And before the throne of God, you sang this out loud, that God the just is satisfied. In other words, there's a holy character of God that I get to come into his presence, but I don't get to be there unless his justice is first satisfied. And the only way it's satisfied is if Christ spilled his blood for my sin, You ever wonder, like, you read the crucifixion story, and you're like, why, like, why so bloody? You read the Old Testament, sacrifice, why so bloody? The Hebrews tells us, like, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The, the blood is to remind us that's how holy God is and how much he hates my sin. We worship the God who is. 
And the God who is is found, and if you want to flip over in your Bible to John chapter 4, the story of the woman of the well. Very famous story. You guys probably know this. It's a great little story in John chapter 4 where Jesus comes to this well in the middle of the day. He's really, really thirsty. He's fatigued. His disciples go into town to buy food, and this Samaritan woman comes up to draw water. And there's a lot of, it's a whole, I could preach a whole sermon on John 4, probably have, but um, you know, there's a whole reason she's out in the middle of the day. That wouldn't be the normal time to be drawing water. Jesus says, hey, I'm thirsty. Draw me some water. Um, and so they begin this conversation, and it actually starts with ra- a racial co- a conversation. She's like, wait a minute. Jews and Samaritans don't even talk to each other, right? And then Jesus says, well, if you understood the water that I had, you'd never thirst again, right? And she goes, huh, well, this is Jacob's well. It's really deep. You don't have anything to draw with. And Jesus says, I know, I have the water of life. I have water that if you drink from it, you'll never thirst again. And she's in the middle of the day. She's got to draw from the well. That's hard work. It's hot. And she's like, man, I'd love to have some of that water, right? I never draw. And she's still thinking on a physical plane. She's trying to get her to think spiritually. And so Jesus offers her the water of eternal life. But before, he can do, before she can receive the water of eternal life, Jesus still has to deal with her sin issue, right? As he does with all of us, right? The gospel message is not simply believe, it's repent and believe, right? We have to deal with sin as well as what we believe in. Both are important. So he deals with her sin issue, and he says, yeah, listen, I can give you that, that water of, that will give you eternal life, but I first need you to go get your husband. What does she say? Anybody knows John 4? What does she say? I don't have a husband. He goes, and then he goes, you're right, you've had five, and the guy you're shacking up with now isn't your husband. And she's like, whoa, I perceive you to be a prophet. Right, like, how'd you know all that? Like, I didn't post it on Facebook, you know? And so, and so Jesus then says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, right? After they kind of get in this theological debate about, well, my, de- my family, the Samaritans say you gotta worship over here, and the Jews say you gotta worship over here. And so Jesus says this in the midst of this debate, John chapter four, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in two very important things, spirit and what, church? Truth. For the Father seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A couple things about spirit and truth. First of all, we are called by Jesus to worship in spirit. It's fascinating that he leaves this a little bit open-ended, actually, um, because I think it means a couple things. Number one, I think it means, obviously, the Holy Spirit. You have to be born again to worship God. You have to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. This goes back just one chapter in the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter 3, where Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It doesn't make any sense to you. It'll never make any sense to you until you're being born again. And Nicodemus takes that very literal, right? And he's like, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? What does that even mean? And Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We have to have a spiritual rebirth to worship the Father rightly. We're dead in our sins, according to the scriptures, Ephesians 1. We're dead. Can a dead man do anything? Can a dead man get up and go, hey, I'm going to be good? Can a dead man have life? No. What does a dead man need? A dead man needs life. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that grants us the ability to repent and believe by God's grace and mercy upon us. And then once we repent and believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us and begins to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God. Does anybody know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? A couple things. The Ten Commandments. That is symbolic of the idea that when we're born again and the Holy Spirit is in us, it's molding us into the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are the character of God. And the Ten Commandments start with, we got to be a worshiper of God and God alone. He takes up residence in our hearts and lives. So we worship in spirit, the Holy Spirit. I also think it talks, I think there's an idea here of like we worship God with our spirit. Like our spirit. Like a little bit of enthusiasm in worshiping the God of the Bible. What? I'm, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling in my own life. We should not, as, as Christians, be coming to corporate worship with less enthusiasm than we have for the Super Bowl. <laughs> right? Now I'm meddling in my own life. And here's where I get this from. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful. There's a gratitude to our worship. Why are we grateful? Because we're receiving a king. When the Holy Spirit takes a residence, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, or thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This is one of the four or five God is statements in the New Testament. For our God is a consuming fire. In other words, he, he, the author of Hebrews says, have some gratitude, have some enthusiasm, have some reverence, have some awe. We're not, church, we don't worship a dead religion. We worship a living God. Listen, one of the things is living God calls us to do. By the way, God doesn't live in this building, all right? This is not a tabernacle, right? And, and churches sometimes have taken these kind of temple tabernacle ideas and, and built really ornate buildings. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's not, God doesn't live on 101 Village Avenue, but this is our space that he's given this church where we gather corporately to praise him and to hear the word of God. And when we show up here, man, listen, don't come to corporate worship having gotten two hours of sleep. That's not enthusiasm. That's not reverence and awe. Get a good night's rest. Yes, I went long in the 8 o'clock service, so you got to get here a little bit early to check your kids in, right? And I get it's frustrating. But man, let's be ready to worship God. We worship a living God, and let's do it with our spirit, with some enthusiasm, amen? Let's be ready to sing. Let's be ready to open the Word of God and hear from it. Secondly, let it be, we worship in the truth, spirit and truth. We don't worship the God of our making. We worship the God who is. He said worship in spirit and truth. Holy Spirit, our spirit, and we worship the truth. First, there's the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said the woman in the well goes on to say in John chapter 4, 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, that means the anointed one. So even as a Samaritan going, she knew her Old Testament. She knew she was at Jacob's well. She knew the tabernacle was a sign and a symbol of things to come. She knew the lineage, the promises to Abraham. She knew the promises to David. She knew that there was a Messiah coming through the downline of Abraham. She knew the Messiah was coming, and when he came, he would set everything straight. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. 
And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus said to her, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Word made flesh, I'm the Christ, I'm the only way to God, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. We must worship in the truth, and the truth is Jesus is our only way to God. You cannot get to God apart from Christ alone. Secondly, we've got to worship in the truth of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, we have to know and live according to the Word of God. Paul writes to young Timothy, all scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. Why is that important? Because that's who God is. We worship a righteous God, and he's given us his word, and he wants us to pivot and adjust our lives to the truth. So we know the truth of Christ, the truth of his word. Number three, we have to worship God by obeying the truth. It can't just be head knowledge. We have to obey the truth to worship in the truth. James says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Head knowledge is not enough to worship God. For if anyone, verse 23 of James 1, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror He looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like. James is making the illustration. Look, there's about most of you, there's about four or five of you that maybe didn't adjust, but most of you got up this morning, you looked in the mirror, it's like, man, I got to do something with this before I go to church. It's a handful of you, it's like, yeah, that's good enough. And that's like a person that hears the word and doesn't pivot, right? Doesn't do anything about it. So we worship in the truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the word of God, and the truth of walking and obeying the truth of the word of God. Principle number one, we worship the God who is. God cares about how he's worshiped. How do we know? Look at the detail of the tabernacle. God cares how he's worshiped. We have to worship the God who is. Second principle, uh, God gives really specific instructions to the priest and setting aside of the priesthood, okay? But here's our second principle. Jesus is our truer, better high priest. Aaron and his sons were just a, a shadow, it's just a, a, a child's stick figure, if you will, right, of, of, the, of the priest to come. You know, in the Old Testament, we'll get to this next year in Leviticus, right? But I'll give you a little precursor now. So Jesus sets up the, t- I mean, God sets up the tabernacle through Moses, right? And there's the Holy of Holies. He sets apart the priest. And we're going to get to, in Leviticus, what the priest needed to do when he entered the Holy of Holies once a year. So once a year, this high priest Aaron would, would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of all the peoples in the presence of God. And this holy inner part of the tent was symbolic of meeting God face to face. And we know that the Bible says, no man can see God and what? Anybody know? He can't live. Like, it's a big deal. And so in Leviticus... Aaron gets, hey, here's, before you enter once a year, this is what you got to do. First, you have to bathe. Then you have to put on the specific clothing, the holy clothing, which we already saw on the slide. Then you have to offer sacrifice for your sin before you enter into the holy of holies. Then after that, I'm going to, I want you to take two goats 
And one goat I want you to sacrifice as a picture in front of the people of the blood sacrifice that's needed for the forgiveness of sin. And then on the second goat, I want you to place your hands on that goat, symbolic of placing all the sins of the people on the second goat. And then I want you to chase that goat out into the wilderness, representing that God has forgiven our sin and taken it away. By the way, that's where we get the term scapegoat, by the way. That takes away our sin. And then, before you go in, I want you to enter the Holy of Holies in this direct meeting with God. And I want you to do, with, do it with incense surrounding you. And if you remember, if you, would re- if you read, you read uh, Exodus 29, that the, 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 uh, and 28 and 29, the uh, robe of the high priest had bells on it. There were bells all around the bottom of the robe. Why was that? When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, he went in with bells on his robe, and they actually would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he went in on an inappropriate way and God struck him dead, they would know because they would notice that the bells were no longer ringing, and then they would use the rope to pull his corpse out of the Holy of Holies because no one else was allowed into the presence of God. And then once in the Holy of Holies, you would sprinkle the blood of the bulls and the goats on the mercy seat, asking God for mercy for the forgiveness of sin. Then he would come out, he would bathe again, dress in another set of clothing. Then he would take the remains of the bulls and the goats outside of the camp, and he would burn it there. All of this is to remind us that entering the presence of God is a serious, serious matter. We don't enter the presence of God as if he's one of our homies. But now we have a truer, better high priest. Jesus Christ has shed his blood. He has become the scapegoat for our sin. He is the perfect high priest that now enters into the presence of God. I remember years ago, um, I got asked to preach, I mean pray at a community event. And around this time, there was a politician that had prayed in Congress, and the politician had closed the prayer in Jesus' name, and this kind of spun up the whole world on the internet. And everybody was like, "You can't pray in Jesus' name." We just, you know, different people have different beliefs about God, and yada 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 yada. And I don't know what went. And, I, and around the time I got invited to this community event, so I, I called up the uh, person in charge of the community event. I said, "Hey, just to let you know, like I, you know, if you want to take me off, I'm not offended, but I, the only way that I can pray is in Jesus' name." In fact, I'm going to tell you something. Like, sometimes I start my prayers with, I come in Jesus' name. That's the only reason I get to be there. If I come in my own sinful, rebellious nature, what I deserve is to be struck dead by God. The only reason I can come in your presence, oh God, is because you have said that if I repent of my sin and believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ gets credited to me by grace through faith. I am here in the name of Jesus only. And so start and end your prayers, just to be doubly sure, right? Any kind of thing. And Jesus is the true, better high priest. Check this out in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help to help in a time of need. 
The truer, better high priest, letter A, he's a sympathetic high priest. It literally means that he, he suffered along with us. He's walked in our shoes. The Son of God, Christ, he had no place to lay his head sometimes. Can you imagine that? Most of us, we have a bed to go home to. There were times that the Son of God didn't have a place to lay his head. He has suffered along with us. Yet, let her be, he's a perfect high priest. He did it without sin. He never missed the mark of God's holiness and righteousness. And so because of this great high priest, the truer and better high priest, Jesus, let her see, we can now draw near to God. The holy of holies is now, we have access to the holy of holies because of Jesus Christ. We don't have to wash in garments and bells and rope around the ankle and scapegoat and bulls and all that stuff. That full and final Lamb of God has shed his blood, and we now have access to God Almighty in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Anybody remember what happened in the temple that was rebuilt? By the way, we've been learning about this. I hope you're seeing, remembering some things, right? Remember Last year we did Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the walls of the temple and rebuilding the temple and all that stuff. And so it comes to the birth of Christ in Mark chapter 15, and Jesus died on the cross, Mark 15, 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And something happened at the temple when he breathed his last. Anybody remember what happened? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Because of Christ, this holy God is no longer distant because of Christ, our God, he's, he's not unconcerned. In fact, the book author of Hebrews says, man, we can enter boldly into his presence. And he's very specific here because this verse gets taken out of context. We, get to, we don't get to boldly enter his presence and ask him for a new Tesla. Man, I need a newer car, God. No, we get to boldly enter his presence and ask for mercy and grace, mercy is not getting what I don't is not getting what I deserve. I deserve your punishment. I come asking for mercy, God, and asking for grace, which is getting what I don't deserve, because you're going to take care of me and help me in my time of need. Which, by the way, there might be a time that you do need a car, right? I remember when my wife and I were in seminary. We're dirt poor. I was trying to get my master's degree. We we're living in Florida. It was a three-year, well, I don't know, hundred and some credits that I found out didn't help me at all in pastoring a church. Helped me some, but not as much as I thought. So, um, and the first year there, my I had this little Honda Civic. It was old. It was kind of it looked like a wedge, uh, you know, kind of thing. And uh, the transmission was slipping. I'm driving around town, transmission was just slipping. I'm like, oh man, this isn't good. We didn't have any money. I go to the I go to the auto mechanic, because he had a transmission slipping, he quoted me a bill, and I was like, we, we don't have that. And we went home, my wife and I, and we prayed, and we asked for mercy, and we asked for grace, and we asked for a new car. I was like, I, I, like, I don't know how I'm going to, I need help in a time of need. And I kid you not, for the next three years, that car transmission never slipped again. Not one time. Don't clap too much, because as soon as I graduated and got a job, I sold it as quickly as I could. I, <laughs> so as far as I know, it's working great. So I don't know if God's favors with you, but <laughs> um, 
So can we go in and ask for things? Of course. Like, God, like, I, man, I'm in trouble here. I need mercy. I need grace. We have a true, better, high priest. All right, number three. I got to move here. Third principle I want you to see is God has set apart Christians to be his representatives. Okay. Chapter 28 and 29, the priests are the representatives of the Lord. And just as the priests were to represent God among the community, we too, according to the Apostle Peter, are set apart as Christians to represent God in our communities. Check this out, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Listen, everybody, one of the things that's weird about being a pastor is it's like I'm treated like I'm a priest. Anywhere we go, it's like, hey, we're going to have lunch. Can you pray? Like, you can pray. Your Bible says you're a priest. I ain't got to do it, you know, like... And listen, depending on how hungry I am is how quick the prayers go, all right? Like, if I'm not hungry, I'll pray forever, but man, I'm hungry. Like, God, thank you for the food. Let's go. Amen. All right? So that's how I pray. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's each of you. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Check out verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is written to people like the nation of Israel that just lost, left Egypt. They're not yet in the promised land. They are in the middle of the desert. And it's like God telling us, you don't belong here. You ain't home yet. Too many of us, especially American Christians, we are setting our affections in this world. And God says, this is not your home. You are aliens going to a place that I'm taking you. Therefore, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may instead see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Just as God gave detailed attention to the priests and how they were to represent God before his people, we are now his people. We now represent God before the people, the people that don't know him yet. And Peter is clear, like we're here to proclaim the excellencies of the gospel. We're no longer to live in darkness, but to pursue holiness. We're no longer to indulge our sinful flesh. We're to live in such an honorable way that people would look at us and say, there's something different about you. I need to know your God. Because the God that I'm worshiping is leaving me in a mess. And so how are you representing the character of God at work? Would your boss... Say, man, you're a priest of the living God because you work differently than everyone else here. And in your speech and in your sexual purity and in your generosity with your money and in your free time and in your entertainment and in your marriage. And just as there were detailed instructions for the priests on their outer garments, God has given us detailed instructions on how to clothe ourselves in holiness and righteousness. Peter says, you're in a foreign land. Don't get settled there. You are to be uncomfortable because you're representing a holy God and the people you're living amongst, they don't, live, they don't know that holy God. So you're gonna be different. God forbid if the community around us says the priest of God look just like me. We're to look different because we're representing God in our community. Paul says you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. 
We are set apart to represent God in our community. Finally, point number four, and we'll finish up here. The purpose of redemption is for, the God's purpose for redemption is to be with his people. God's purpose of redemption is to be with his people. Exodus 29, I'm gonna read these couple verses. I love the end of Exodus 29. There I will meet with the people in this tent, this tabernacle. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory and I will consecrate or set apart the tent of meeting and the altar and Aaron also and his sons and I will consecrate or set apart to serve me as priests. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. From the very beginning of Adam and Eve, God has redeemed his people, bought us back from the slavery of sin so that he could just be with us and live with us. And we see this in the garden before sin hit the planet. And and how did God find out that Adam had sinned and Eve had sinned? Remember, he's walking in the garden in the cool of the night or the evening, right? And he calls out, Adam, what, where are you? And Adam's like, well, I was naked, so I hid myself. Who told you you were naked, right? Listen, I, this is my sanctified imagination. This is not in the Bible, but I wonder, was this a regular thing that God did? Hey, Adam, tell me about your day. How was it? Well, you know, it's funny. I was plowing the back 40, and there's this rock out there. And God's like, hey, man, I'll sh- tomorrow I'll help you move it. We're going to work together because I care about the things you're going through. And by the way, lest you think I'm kidding about that, let let me just trace this through the Bible. Exodus chapter six, verse seven, when God first takes the people out of Egypt and into the, towards the promised land, this is what he says in Exodus six, seven. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord of God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's God's way of saying, I wanna be with you. I wanna set you free. Check this out, Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place, God said, shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst forevermore. Jeremiah 32, and they shall be my God and I will be their what? They shall be my people and I will be their what, church? I'll be their God. John 14, 114, talking about the birth of Christ. And the word became flesh and did something. What did he do? What's the word there? You want to know what the word dwelt is in the original language? Tabernacled. Pitched his tent. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Revelation 21, this is where our faith becomes sight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for his husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore because these are the former things and they've passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And then he turns to John. He says, John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end of the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment 
the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. God has always redeemed his people so that he can be involved in our lives. Isn't that cool? So here's the what I'm gonna finish this morning. God has not forgotten about you. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties. Cast all your cares. The NLT says it this way. Give all your worries and cares to God. You wanna know why? He cares for you. So here's what we're gonna do. I want everybody to stand. Everybody stand with me. Anybody worry about anything this week? Any anxieties in the room? Me too, right? Whenever I'm anxious, it's because I'm thinking the God of the universe has somehow forgotten me and I need to do it in my own strength. And instead, God has said, through Christ, our truer, better high priest, he says, come to me, I care about everything you're going through. Do your journey with me. And so here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to bow your head and I want you to pray. And I'm gonna kind of guide it, but man, I just want you to, to cast your cares on the Lord. Father, we come in the name of our great high priest. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the sacrifice, the risen son of God. justice is satisfied because we come in his name. God, we bring this thing that we've been anxious about this week. God, for the child of ours that's maybe wandering from you, you care about them more than we do. The spouse that's not walking with you, God, we just, God, we ask that you work. We trust you're working in the shadows for the workplace that's unsettled right now. God, you're doing something. We trust you. God, for the financial provision that's needed, God. Sermon on the Mount, you said you care for the birds of the air, so surely you'll provide everything that we need. God, for the the person in our lives that just keeps giving us a hard time, God, and we're trying hard to endure with patience and godliness, God. May we have endurance and perseverance, and may they get saved. So this morning, God, we cast all our cares on you, because you care for us. And we know, God, that we're in this desert journey, but we're looking forward to the day our faith becomes sight, because we indeed know how the story ends. We long for that day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's go out singing this morning.